welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan Singh, and we'd like to welcome you back to season two of our podcast. For today's episode, we'll be welcoming Dr. Stuart McLaughlin, who we are beyond thrilled to have on our podcast. Dr. McLaughlin is an assistant professor in the Mechanical and Mechatronics Engineering Department at the University of Waterloo. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McLaughlin. You're actually the second University of Waterloo faculty member to join us for an episode, which is pretty cool. And I've also heard that you're a pretty avid snowboarder. So have you had the chance to hit the slopes in the past few months? Yeah, actually, we were just uh, with when they opened uh, the ski hills in Ontario, we've been able to get uh, get out in the slopes. And actually, I've had to leave my, my board behind because now we're, uh, we're teaching our little kids how to how to ski, actually. And so it's a little bit easier to start on skis. So we had our our four year old and our one year old out on skis this weekend. So uh, it's uh, it's they keep us pretty busy and, <laughs> and pretty tired as a result. Staying active is you know, really good for the body, uh, specifically the spine, I'm sure, is, is a great, great tool um, that you use when you're skiing and snowboarding. And on that note, we'll kind of hop into the first question. So, uh, Professor McLaughlin, in your research lab, you guys cover a pretty wide range of topics from surgical implants, computer-assisted surgery, uh, wearable sensors for musculoskeletal rehab, you know, quite a diverse range of topics. So, can you kind of give us an overview of what your lab is about. Sure. Thanks, Jonah. That's, I mean, that's a great question. And, and kind of, I do like that. Again, I think it's, it's uh, I think many profs are uh, very low, laser focused and I try to have a, a very broad view of research and, and what, and what kind of our skills and our students can, and the problems they can kind of help solve. And really for me, this comes, my training was in mechanical engineering, but as I, as I moved further into my graduate studies, I got to be involved more and more with multidisciplinary research. And that kind of opened my eyes to how people can kind of work together to solve solve complex problems. It, it often from a single discipline, uh, you don't have enough uh, expertise and tools in your, in your tool belt to solve the problem alone. And so this is where, um, for me, I've worked a lot and worked very closely with orthopedic surgeons, um, basically right from my fourth year till now. And um, working closely with them, I got a chance to to see how they view different different types of problems for their own, for their patients, um, for their healthcare system, you know, the economics of that. And so that they that unique perspective kind of has, um, uh, I, I've taken it to heart and I've used that to kind of drive my program forward. And so for me, in terms of having sort of that broad array of topics, they all kind of fall under this orthopedic biomechanics, trying to um, basically look at what are what are some complex and unsolved issues in terms of helping patients get back to you know a healthy active lifestyle uh it really does come back down to working with uh uh working with different people at different skill sets and it could be from the student side of things whether you're from mechanical engineering or electrical engineering or chemical or some other type of again it could be biomedical as well like you guys are are well equipped to solve uh difficult problems but also on the on the expert side as well um and so that's what I've worked with experts in uh, medical imaging and in, in virtual simulation and robotics um, and wearable sensors. So again, that's where it's, for me, it's been kind of to be the glue to kind of bring these multidisciplinary uh, groups together to solve these, pro solve these problems. So just to clarify for anybody who doesn't know, what does orthopedics refer to? Sure. Again, that's a, a, something you often, I, I forget at times, but orthopedics really is looking at the idea of helping solve where you have diseases or, or trauma with, with bone and with your bones and joints. 
And so orthopedics as a discipline uh, goes way back as far as like, you know, the idea of broken bones and how do you fix it? Um, and it's sort of around the, the in, this, in the mid seventies or so, they started looking at um, where the discipline sort of took off beyond just casting and fixing bones to looking at joint replacements. Um, and, and Charlie was one of the, the key names for that. But again, they, they, uh, they end up looking at, um, you know, how do we kind of get people back to being active, right? It's sort of the, often the thing with, with joints um, is kind of the, the use it or lose it uh, mentality, right? And so we want to keep people active and keep people using their joints. Um, but as we've had other problems with you know, diabetes and obesity, um, that really has uh, accelerated a lot of the bone and joint diseases. And so um, for orthopedic surgeons, there's been a huge, um, a huge push over the past few decades for hip and knee implants. Uh, and and those technologies have really uh, matured and, and excelled to the point where, you know, the people that are receiving hip and knee implants today do up and quite well for a long period of time. For me, where I come in is on the orthopedic side is on the spinal orthopedics. And that's one that's always kind of captured my eye because it's, um, it's a more difficult, I mean, maybe not more difficult, but it's a, it's a challenging field where, again, the outcomes aren't quite as good. Um, and just as, a, from, as an engineer, there's still a lot of, a lot of um, difficult problems to be solved there. And since your work is pretty relevant to the human body and focused mainly on helping patients, are you actually able to involve actual human subjects in the research that you've been doing? Sure. That's something, actually, that's a great question, Arian. That's something we've done more recently. When I first, first training, a, a lot of our work in orthopedic biomechanics was studying, was studying how do we improve the implants? How do we design them? How do we test them? And a lot of testing can't be done. Um, uh, when you're looking at sort of, for me as a mechanical engineer, trying to understand how strong something is, right? So you're going to put an implant into somebody, you, you want to basically pull it out to see how strong it's going to be. But, you know, for somebody who's a, somebody's patient, they probably don't want to be subjected to that test. So for a lot of our uh, initial work was we did it with like animal models and, and cadaver type studies to um, to kind of look at these bone uh, bone implant mechanics. More recently, we've we've been able to do some uh, working cl closely with patients. I in my postdoc, I got a chance to work at Sunnybrook Hospital. Um, we're getting work closely with surgeons there. But then uh, that that and through one of the uh, connections I was able to build there, uh, we developed uh, an approach for looking at wearable devices to track and monitor uh, uh, shoulder exercise rehabilitation in the home setting. So again, rotator cuff tears and, and these types of shoulder disorders are, are highly prominent in older individuals. Um, and you know, there's a, hu a huge healthcare burden as a result. And so uh, we were looking at different strategies that, that could be used because again, for patients that wanted to avoid the need for surgery, they'd have to go through these um, physiotherapy or physical therapy regimes. And a lot of that is done in the home setting. And right at the time, a lot of those patients, um, and again, still, still now, a lot of sort of how that's monitored and tracked is through these diaries and things like that. So again, did you do your exercise on this day? Did you do it on that day? And so for tracking that doesn't work very well for the, for the surgeon or the clinician to get a good insight into what their patients are actually doing at home. So we, um, uh, a couple, a group of us developed an uh, approach using a smartwatch to look at um, exercise tracking using machine learning with a smartwatch where we could use the watch to um, recognize certain exercise movements, similar to how it can basically a lot of these, like a Fitbit can count your steps now with the, our machine learning algorithms, they could look at tracking specific exercises. And so we could use this to help inform 
And this actually uh, worked pretty well when we, we applied some of the latest and greatest um, work in, in machine learning. Um, and actually then it was uh, picked up by, uh, again, the Sunnybrook um, uh, orthopedic staff on the, on the surgery side. And so they're actually doing a, a study with patients now where they actually gave patients smartwatch um, to take home and then use it for tracking their exercise therapy. Now, I think uh, unfortunately, the COVID pandemic, I think, halted some of that, but I know they were able to collect some studies and that data was actually just, uh, I think, either published or is, is uh, recently, or should be published very shortly. So it's, it's a, my, uh, where we've done some work with patients, I guess, is my, my closest foray to that. But a lot of our work is still in the lab. And so it's, it's again, um, there's a little bit of a disconnect there to the patients, but we still have tried to, I've tried to keep it going. And at Waterloo, we actually have, the other nice things we have, um, uh, a, a close connection with patients through the network for aging research and um, there's uh, age well as well. And again, there's uh, a whole, um, basically a whole community of people that are connected to Waterloo, whereas um, for research on older adults. And so this is sort of, a, we've used them uh, recently, again, kind of an extension of this shoulder work where we looked at, um, uh, we looked at sort of the actual kinematics of the shoulder and trying to improve our smartwatch approach to tracking exercise movements. So we were able to, um, through this network for aging research, bring in older adults into, into the lab. And we worked with um, uh, Clark Dickerson, who's in kinesiology. He has a, a shoulder mechanics lab. So they could bring him in and basically get them all markered up for, for motion capture. And, and through that, um, basically track the kinematics with the smartwatch to kind of compare sort of what the smartwatch says is happening versus what sort of the gold standard motion capture is saying. So again, it's, it's, it is nice to be able to work with, with, real, with real people at times. Every yeah. time you say kinematics, I get a flashback to our first year physics course. Ooh. Oh, and second year too. <laughs> yeah, not fun times. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's great to hear that you're able to actually get patients involved in the work you've been doing. Our research is definitely always better and you're actually able to interact with the people that you're helping. So it's, it's great to hear that. But one thing I'm pretty curious about is I heard that your laboratory also does research related to computer-assisted orthopedic surgery. And I can imagine that doing that type of research with patients is probably really difficult because, you know, you can't just take a spine out of a person and study that, right? So uh, I assume that you've mainly been using computer-based models for this. So what are the biggest hurdles that you faced when you've been studying this topic where you can't really directly interact with patients? Yeah, I mean, I think from the, from the, again, it's a great question. I think from the patient side, I think what they just care about at the end of the day is did, did the surgeon, did the surgery go well, right? And I'm like, I'm going to feel better at the end of it, right? So my, the outcome's going to be improved. And I think that's where something like computer-assisted surgery is really trying to, you know, stake a claim that, you know, we're going to um, really improve the outcomes. And often it's not going to, it's not taking a surgery that's, you know, 50% effective. The surgeries are already effective. What it's trying to do is eliminate some of those outliers, right? So a surgery that's 95% effective, can you get up to 98 or 99% effective with computer-assisted surgery? So from the patient's perspective, I think that they mainly just want to know that it ends up in the right spot. So that's where, from my perspective, where we come in is to try to then help develop technologies that can that are relevant for the operating room where it can still fit within sort of the, the bounds and the constraints of the operating room, both from a, a physical space perspective, a time constraint perspective, and an economics perspective as well. And so uh, it, we, there's different ways to get at that. We've done work to, to look at sort of, again, even through like the, some of the design projects at Waterloo, we've had a couple of groups look at different technologies, including like augmented reality and different uh, technologies like that to get in the opera room. And some of this is still um, slowly creeping into, uh, into actual surgeries now. Um, 
again, with more on the larger industry side of things, but for us, we can kind of play around with some of these interesting ideas. Um, the other thing that we can do on the computer assisted side that's useful is also comes down to surgeon training. And this is where, where there's been a little bit of resistance to um, sort of over the past few decades, resistance to using what it, the clickly is like uh, surgical navigation. But the pushback is that is that most surgeons who hadn't been trained on it in their like earlier days were kind of more resistant to it because it was very foreign. Whereas some of the newer surgeons that are coming down or come through, they're very familiar. They're you know they grew up playing video games. They're very adapt to um, you know working with technologies. And so some of the newer surgeons who are now you know coming into their prime uh, are very receptive and are very keen to you know use the latest technology to help deliver their surgeries more effectively and also more efficiently as well. So, I mean, OR time is very expensive. So if we can develop technologies that can, you know, get the surgery done quicker and, and safer, then they're certainly going to be receptive to that. And the hospitals are going to be more receptive to that as well. Um, yeah, so we've done some, we've done some cool projects, but it's, it's a fun area to work in, um, you know, especially for myself, where again, we do a lot of work in implant design and implant testing, but it really comes down to also making sure that if we design the right implant, we want to put it into the right spot. Um, the other thing I was just thinking about on the same note was again, talking about training. So again, we've also done some work uh, for computer assisted surgery is also how, how do we train surgeons? And again, if you think about that operating operating room time is expensive, then it's, you also know if you're getting surgery or getting spine surgery, you probably don't want, you know, junior, junior resident to, to help be learning on your own back, right? And so this is where we've used computer assisted surgery as well, also on the, on the training side to develop virtual simulations where residents and, and fellows can go through and basically use some of the software tools that we've developed to to try to like get a sense on on some of the even just seeing a patient's anatomy beforehand right now if you look at some imaging you know to kind of diagnose the spine some of the software we have if you have like a ct scan we can you know generate 3d models where they can then visualize what the patient's anatomy is going to look like and choose where's the correct entry point to make sure that i end up you know, where I'm supposed to end up with this implant and not in some dangerous location where I don't want to be. So again, often if you if you start in the right spot, you end up in the right spot. And so I think that's where some of these virtual tools have, have helped as well. Um, we've also had a chance to work with um, some industry partners as well. And again, there's some, there's some really exciting ones in our local area as well for this. Um, I previously had done some work um, in my fellowship with a company called Synaptive Medical in Toronto. Um, and so they're, they're primarily focused on brain surgery navigation, but I was working with them on some, on some spine ideas. And it was, it was a really fun time. This was before I joined Waterloo, but we're still, we're still continuing that on. Um, and so that's been fun. And then, in, uh, and one of the major success stories for the, for Waterloo was, is IntelliJoint uh, Surgical. And they, they do a lot of work in computer assisted surgery for hip and knee applications. And again, just trying to, um, where you have such a big market, they can um, employ their unique camera system um, to basically improve those outcomes to make sure that, the, again, the patient's receiving the, basically the, the most optimal care with their computer-assisted technology. So it's, it's, again, it's an exciting field. And I think there's still lots of uh, paths to go down, especially as more and more is happening on the robotic side, on the augmented reality side, and on the, on the machine learning side as well, and AI. So I think there's really some promising um, things that are going to come down the pipe in the next you know, 10 years or so on, on that space. That's really interesting. You know, a, a lot of those examples you mentioned are, are things that make me really excited, you know, as someone who's going to be entering the field. Um, and I just want to kind of touch on that point you just said on, on kind of the next 10 years or so. So, so having worked kind of in Sunnybrook, uh, in Waterloo and, and at Western, you're, you're pretty ingrained in the Canadian orthopedic mechatronics kind of industry. 
Um, if you had to kind of project those next 10 years and, and maybe say what's going to be different uh, in, the, in, the, in the actual operating room for a patient like 10 years from now, what, what would you say is maybe a, a difference that we could see in the operating room? Yeah, that's a, I, I'm sure it's a loaded question, but that's a big question. I mean, I think if I, if I could really predict that, I would be a very a much wealthier man. Um, that's, so there's obviously a lot, of, a lot at stake there. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of good ideas and a lot of different ideas and, and different factors and unknowns. Like, again, we've just seen with the pandemic, how quickly things can change and how, and all of a sudden an idea that sounded crazy beforehand, something like, you know, virtual reality for training surgeons seemed like ludicrous. Why would we need to do that? And all of a sudden the, the circumstances change and we need new ways to train surgeons. We need new ways to, to train surgeons on, from technologies from industry, where again, maybe don't have industry personnel in the operating room anymore. And so how do we then get new tools and get new technologies in front of surgeons? Um, and so that's where, again, you know, I think things can change overnight. And, and all of a sudden we have, you know, if you've been working in VR and you're getting pushed back and all of a sudden, Hey, this all of a sudden the VR has got a great opportunity. So the same thing could happen, um, you know. Again, as, as, as sort of these major world events can change things quite quickly. Um, you know, looking about thinking again with sort of putting the prognosticator hat on, um, there is some really interesting things that are happening, and I think have happened with you know things like uh, additive manufacturing and three D printing. Um, we see a lot of that now. I mean, some of it's been pushed back, but again, the idea of having this, you know patient specific implant where the implant's been designed specifically for that patient is, is still really appealing. Um, I think there's been some, you know, that's, that makes it that from a workflow and an industry perspective, I think still is not quite there, but there are some new, you know, even just to kind of that is that there continues to be progress on that front. There is, um, you know, again, new opportunities and new developments are going to kind of change things overnight, especially as those technologies begin to mature, they begin to become more ubiquitous where again, we don't have just one 3D printing center in Canada. We have centers, maybe even at the hospital has their own metal printer and things like that, maybe that. Um, but then you're gonna need personnel, you know, who's gonna pay for that and things like that. So it, there still is, it's a really complex system. And that's one of the things I've learned over my sort of uh, 10 plus years working in this in this field is that, you know, you can have a really bright idea, but you, there's still so many complex dynamics that go into it from the regulatory side, from the, again, the reimbursement side, you know, from the surgeon side, from the sales side. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think there's trying to think what else would be really exciting thing that would come down. I think, you know, there's still a lot of interest in surgical robotics as well. And I don't think it's, I think the idea of the robot replacing the surgeon is, is, you know, still far away. Um, but in terms of the robot assisting the surgeon to per perform surgeries more safely, more effectively, more efficiently, like, I think that's, that's either here, or it's going to be here very soon. And, I, and we've, we've seen that again with, with some, on the, on the hip and knee side with the arthroplasty. Um, most of the major medical device manufacturers in orthopedics have, a, have some type of robot now that's sort of trying to put, they're trying to push down that path. Um, because I think, as I said, those newer surgeons that are really tech focused are, are really asking for these type of technologies. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's great stuff. I mean, just those things you listed, like it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, we're kind of talking about them in the scope of this discussion, but it, it's, it's really all about the impact that those things could have when you talk about 95% up to 98%, you know, just think about kind of the day-to-day -day impact that could have on the person who's in that, you know, extra 3% success rate. Like it, it's amazing yeah. to think about. 
Totally. And I think, you know, that's one of the things too, is it's, you know, it's not just, you know, for that single individual or a couple individuals that are, you know, they're, they're sick surgery goes wrong is because when the surgeries do go wrong, it can have major catastrophic consequences for the patient, for the, for the healthcare system. It's a, it's a huge cost burden. So, you know, avoiding even just a few small cases where, you know, you have major complications that can be a big difference, right. For the hospital and for, again, clearly for the patients as well. Um, and so I think that's what we still try to kind of, kind of what keeps me going too is to, to develop these new technologies is, you know, we don't necessarily have to, um, you know, solve this big on, but it's more of this, the, the smaller improvements we can help define and, and make things better and, you know, reduce the smaller chance of error. Um, sorry, reduce the chance of error, then I think that's just going to hopefully make a big difference in the long run for, for everybody. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear, as you mentioned before, that robots are being incorporated into many different types of surgeries. Like even a couple of days ago, I was watching a YouTube video and, the, and uh, there were actually a couple of cardiothoracic surgeons in the video and they were talking about how they've been uh, starting to use certain robotic tools in their surgeries. And it's really interesting to hear about how people are actually putting this much trust into robotics. I don't know if I'd <laughs> if I trust a robot that much, but it's it's really cool to see how technology has been advancing. But yeah, yeah. Totally. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say I get it's right again. That's a huge. It's still a big gap, right? Is is the is the acceptance both for the you know the patient convincing them that it's the right thing to do, and obviously I think you know comparing the U.S. versus Canada, even like you know we we don't really get a much of a choice here in Canada as to what surgery we get, and so in many ways the robotics lags here. But when in the states where again they're marketing directly to the patient, um, it can be very appealing to say, hey, we've got this latest greatest robot that's going to make your surgery safer and get you back to work, basically, you know that much quicker that's very appealing for you know different individuals so um on the robotic side it's, it's interesting to try to who do you have to convince right and it's like you have to convince you have to convince the patient you have to convince the surgeon that again that their their surgeries are going to be their outcomes are going to be improved their patients are going to do better that's a big driver and then you got to convince the hospital or whoever the whoever is going to pay for this capital equipment that they're going to actually make some money back on on buying it right and so it's still like a complex dynamics to kind of make sure that all the parties are happy with it. And yet at the same time, as you say, Ariane, it's still, it's still the patient at the end of the day who has to kind of, you know, trust that there's a robot, you know, um, performing some kind of potentially critical operation. Um, but again, we see that again with different, even though as you think about like some of the work that's happening in automotive and things like that now, like in a lot of there's so much autonomy now that I think we almost aren't even aware of how much it already is affecting our daily lives and things like that. So I think there's still, um, Again, it's part of it is the proof is in the pudding a little bit. Again, they have to show the evidence. They have to show the efficacy of these robotics, do the studies. And I think that's something that, you know, I think you come up on your podcast before, but again, you have to, you have to kind of put in the evidence to show that you're going to, um, the technologies are safe. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're still going to have outliers where things maybe go wrong for some reason. And, you know, they have to still kind of work around that and be honest about where things do go wrong and why they went wrong and try to get to the bottom of that. In orthopedics, one of the, one of the best tools that they have um, and it's been most successful is the idea of, of, of joint registries. Um, and I think um, it was uh, the author that was on your podcast. Um, she had talked about some of the work that's in joint registries and in particularly in Australia, they have one of the best ones. And, and these technologies are these, not technology, these, um, these registries are very useful to identify sort of where things are potentially going wrong and wrong at scale, right? And then that's where rather than having, you know, 
surgeon A keeping all their information to herself and surgeon B keeping all their information to themselves. If everybody's kind of aware of what's actually happening, then you can identify these big issues before um, you have any major catastrophic consequences. So I think that's still something that's, you know, Australia is a big leader from orthopedics. And I think hopefully, you know, we'll see the US and Canada, you know, start pulling up their socks on that front too. Yeah, this is honestly such an interesting field. And I just can't wait to see what it's going to be like when Jonah and I finally enter it. But I'm going to shift gears a little bit with this question I'm about to ask. So something that I've always been very curious about, and I'm pretty sure Jonah has also been curious about it as well, is how do professors start laboratories when they start working at a university? Could you tell us a little bit about what the process was like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess I would say, you know, that's a, it's an interesting question, Ariane. And I think uh, for me, it's still ongoing, right? I think it's still, we're still, still chipping away at it even in a few years in. It's not like you just show up um, the first day and say, here's your lab, it's all stocked. There's like six great grad students ready to go. Um, and so it's, it's, been a, it's been a grind, being honest with it. But I think part of it is still, it's, you know, you're still learning all the time, learning new things. The analogy I would say, I remember I used to say, I say it less now, which is probably a good thing. But the analogy I said the, the first year or so was it, was it felt like you were trying to start six fires at the same time. You know, six campfires at the same time, right? And if you ever try to start a fire, you have to stay really focused on one fire. And so I just felt like, you know, you'd start a fire, you get one fire going, and then another fire would go out. And so I think that's, that's better now. Um, you know, but again, it's just been a learning process. So, you know, in terms of starting a lab, you have, you know, you got to find good students. You got to get, you got to get those students into the, in the door and you got to get them trained. You got to get your lab operational and you think about, okay, what kind of equipment do I need? What kind of resources? And then you got to start bringing funding in. I think that's what, what I've spent a lot of time too, is, is writing grants and trying to write papers and trying to write more grants when the first grants aren't successful. And then, you know, kind of keeping your head up when you, it's just a lot of rejection and, um, yeah, you, you, you know, you have wins every now and then, but you, you know, you have to kind of keep your head up when you have some failure. And I think that's part of what you learn as a PI is kind of just keep, you know, keep pushing away, keep make, keeping at it. And, um, and then you start to see the, you know, the, the fruits of your labor as you, you know, you get, you know, a, a couple of years in and, and things start to take off. And then you, and then all of a sudden like, Oh, things are going, things are going pretty quickly now. And things are, you're very busy. You got lots on the go. And so that that's a good thing. But, um, no, it's, 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 it's fun, but it's, it's definitely can be a grind too at times, but it's, it's uh, overall, it's been good. And I think for me, one of the things I've enjoyed the most, especially at Waterloo is, is the students. And I think that's one thing that I probably um, didn't expect coming in. I think, you know, when I think about myself, you know, uh, some of how I trained, you know, kind of your focus, you're, you're working on your own uh, interests, you're trying to build up your own skills, right, just to, to get to a certain level. And then you, you get your, you, when you get your faculty job, all of a sudden now you're trying to help train others, right? You're trying to bring others up and try to think about how to, how to train them and, and what kind of skills they need. What are their strengths and weaknesses? How can you kind of um, hone those and foster those to, to, to build up and give them the best success they can as well. And so that's, that's been fun, you know, at the undergrad level, at the grad level. Um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been good. So I don't know if that answers it, I guess, but. No, that's, that's a great point. And from a student's perspective, I can say that it does make an impact when you get to work with a, a professor who does kind of uh, let you do meaningful work and kind of try new things, experiment. And um, it, it, it is a very important factor in, in the growth of kind of your work ethic, your skills, but also in terms of your career path. You know, uh, Aaron and I both have experience having worked in labs in the past and uh, I, I think I can speak for both of us in saying that it was a very positive experience. And 
one thing I think we've been pretty consistent on kind of throughout our podcast is really encouraging any student who's listening to, you know, just, just send an email to a professor who, whose work you think is interesting because you never know. You never know what might happen. Um, no, yeah, I so, sorry. I totally um, agree with you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, believe me, I have so many more questions that I would love to ask you. Unfortunately, you know, we have, we try and keep our episodes to a reasonable length. I'll try and finish with this one last question. Um, I am curious what your thoughts are on the fact that with COVID, everybody's been working from home. We haven't been commuting, so we haven't been walking. We haven't been um, outside as much, perhaps. You've been sitting a lot more. Is there any tangible impact you think to maybe the spines of kind of the Canadians as a whole due to the fact that we're all kind of sitting working from home? No, it's a great point. I mean, I think there'll be so many um, side effects to this working from home and the COVID um, pandemic that, you know, will we'll take, you know, five, 10 years to kind of manifest. And, and I think, you know, looking at, um, you know, prolonged sitting, but I think people are I think people are more and more aware of that now and, you know, the working from home situation, I think people still can kind of, you know, are a little bit more flexible actually, I think probably than they were before. Maybe if you were in, um, you know, an office building, you were kind of writing code and you were stuck in your chair and everybody else was stuck in their chair. You kind of see that now if you're at home, maybe there's a chance to kind of get up and walk around, go grab, go to the kitchen, get somebody, come back. And so um, I do think, yeah, again, certainly that's a risk, not just the spine, but a whole host, whole host of other uh, health factors are um, probably going to be of concern. And I, again, I'm not maybe not the expert on that topic, but um, yeah, I, I would say to anybody that is listening and you're sitting a long time, you make sure you get up. And it's one thing I've tried to do in my lectures is just to try to take a pause, stand up. If you're, if you don't have a, a standing desk, stand up and, and just walk around. Or if you're, if you're just listening to the lecture, just make sure you're maybe throw your headphones on and walk around and listen to me uh, blabber on about statics or whatever I'm teaching on that day. But uh, no, it's a good point. I think, yeah, you've got to encourage people to, to stay mobile and stay active and also just stay positive. I think that's the one thing that um, people have to try to do right now. It's, it's, it's a grind out there, but I think hopefully you can keep your head up and um, we'll get through this. And that's a great note to end the, end the episode on a nice positive note there. So Dr. McLaughlin, Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, really interesting stuff. Got Arne and I both very excited for the, for the future. And hopefully to anybody listening, you've also found some reasons to maybe be a little bit more optimistic, not only that with COVID ending soon, but, but kind of in spinal surgeries as, as a whole in the, in the coming decade. So Professor McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us. For anybody listening, my name is Jonah Leinwand. My name is Aryan Singh, and we'd like to thank you all for listening to our podcast. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Beyond the Books Pod, and we'll see you next week.